0: Conversation that we've been having in the uh, whatever it was eight or nine sessions up to um, up to the break before Christmas, and um, I, I hope you realise what we've not done is question whether the Bible is important or valid um, or or even has within it um, could be given the title sacred. But we have questioned whether whether the Bible should be elevated to a position that um, it is not questions evaluated, measured against history, culture, um, agendas. Um, It doesn't make it not the Word of God, but like we taught, the Word of God is within it, but we shouldn't necessarily say then that all of it has to be not evaluated for what it is. Otherwise, the people who teach that always ignore things like blessed is the one who dashes their little ones against the stone. They always ignore that stuff. Um, so, so that's not really a, a, a very um, balanced or integrous way of saying what we believe about scripture. So we, we, we came to the conclusion, I hope you share that conclusion to some degree now, um, Chris and I, particularly uh, those of us in leadership here, have some questions about whether we could all, in all honesty, call the Bible um, inerrant and infallible. Um, but we are comfortable with, with very comfortable with calling the Bible inspired. There is inspiration, and I hope with what we've shown with the with the conflicts that we've addressed, but also the thread that runs through it, that that is a um, a very solid and very safe assessment. Um, but that leads me to deal with the question tonight, just for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to reflect on some things we've already taught in some degree, but with a slightly different edge. But I want to look at, um, in the context of what we've said, the Bible, which if you remember, um, uh, that's from the Biblia, which is a library of books, Right? Um, which is what the Bible really is. Um, uh, But the problem that we talked about when the Bible had become a canon, which means that then they had decided this was a closed canon, that nothing could be added, um, nothing should be taken away. And of course the problem is that becomes then, it becomes the only expression of God's revelation that some people would accept. So what we're left with is the Bible versus something there. So what's interesting is the Bible doesn't talk about the Bible, but the Bible talks about the Word. But we've become obsessed with the Bible and, uh, and not, not sought to understand enough whether there was a difference uh, between the Bible and the Word or whether, or whether as some have said and have repeated that phrase that, 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 um, that all the Bible may be the word of God. I mean we question some of that now. But all the word of God is not in the Bible. And um, if we don't come to that conclusion then we are stuck. First of all about 95 AD when the last book of the Bible was written. That's if Revelations was written then. I personally believe that Revelations was written about 68 AD. The reason for that being, if you're interested, is that Revelations does not specifically mention the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet one of the key issues of when, when the New Testament was written is that they would have mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem Uh, The Gospels would have mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a cataclysmic uh, um, event in the Jewish calendar and in Jewish life, and they would have been all over that story, but none of the Gospels mention it, and Revelations doesn't mention it. It would suggest that Revelations and the Gospels were all written before AD 70, when Jerusalem was raised to the ground, which therefore also poses the question for those that are interested, that, that... Revelation is more likely to be about empire, the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire and the salvation of the believing Jews at that time in Jerusalem than it is actually about some mystical future event. Okay, now that again is another story and discussion that uh, sometime we might go through the, the whole issue of what we call glorious eschatology. Um, uh, so... So where, where I'm trying to be honest of where our conversation brings us is to this challenge. Where do we place the Bible? What do we mean by the Bible? And, and what do we mean by the Word? And how do these two things fit together? How do they correlate? How can we, how can we examine them with some accuracy? So, so the Bible became a closed canon round about the 4th century. Now there's some argument because... Um, there was some tinkering right up until the 6th century, 500 AD. But most of this was, was decided by 397, okay? Um, what would be the, the canon? And that was closed then. There was nobody was going to add to that. This was, had then become, this is the Word of God, this is all the Word of God, end of story, okay? So, um... Uh, the truth then is, where, if, if this was closed, the canon, the Bible, let's say 397 is the, the mid-pitch date, this is all the Bible, this is it, right? Closed, closed canon, right? Done. Um, where does it leave this? Okay. Because I would struggle with the suggestion that this is contained within that and can't break out from that especially if the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, came from heaven, was with God in the beginning, which John 1 says, is born of a virgin, comes into life, goes back again. I would struggle for somebody not to address this issue then of what happened to the Word if we could close the Bible off in 397. What about this? Has that stopped working? Does this not apply anymore? is it contained within something that was finished written writing in in about you know if you get your latest date 95 AD is that it so so are we suggesting then that between between 40 to 45 AD and 90 to 95 AD that that was God's window and it was all going to be contained within there. Then nothing to say for the New Testament, for the New Covenant. I hope you realize it's, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. Okay? Now, that doesn't put invalidity upon the New Testament writings. Because they are extremely helpful and useful and good for us. But what it does say is that if we only keep our faith stuck within the written letters of the new testament or the old testament we are probably going to miss what this is all about okay now that can get you run out of town burnt at the stake uh, shamed and disgraced for even that very suggestion but we're not afraid to do that are we here okay so then the issue is where does that leave the word of god after that well the truth is it left the word of god where the word of god has always been Here's what what the writer of Hebrews said about the Word of God. For the Word of God is living, right? The Word of God is living and it's active. So therefore, just on that phrase alone, you cannot contain this within that. This can have a place within that, but you cannot contain it within it because this is not dead. It didn't die in 95 AD. It's living and it's active and he says it's sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to, and here's terrible translation that is misleading, because it should read, penetrating even to where the soul and spirit divide, right? Not divide soul from spirit. That's a that's a Greek idea of secular and spiritual, which got transferred into the Greek translation. It actually means it penetrates to where your spirit and your soul join. It penetrates to where the the bone and the marrow connect. There's no gap between it, but, but it doesn't cut it, separate it that way, bone and marrow. It goes through it. So, we adopted the idea many, many years ago about the phrase pierced through. The idea of this is not separating your physical life from your spiritual life or secular from spiritual. The idea is that the Word of God connects your life. Your physical life your soul life, your spiritual life, the Word of God comes all the way through them and has impact on all of it and makes us whole as a person. Okay, So we can enjoy life, we can enjoy spirituality, we can enjoy soulishness because the Word of God pierces, so when that's holding it together, it's like a kebab. right? Instead of it all shooting off in all kinds of directions, it should all be held together by our understanding of the word of God in us, right? Holding it all together. And many other things we could do to verify that thought, but we haven't got time. So, so in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> uh, Paul, writing this, this letter to the Corinthians, starts wrestling with this very subject that we're talking about, that you might not recognize until you get a little bit of explanation about what he's saying. Um, but what he does, he, he highlights an important difference, which, which may be as much to do with perception as, as it is with anything, but a difference between, between this. The letter and the spirit. He's trying to get us to understand what is a little difficult, but he's doing his best, that there is a distinction between something that is letter and something that is spirit in the same way that there is a distinction between what we call the Bible and what the Bible calls the Word. Now, my job is to try and explain a little bit what that difference is and what they mean. So, as Paul starts to think and write and talk and wrestle with this principle, um, something comes through that has staggering implications. And um, it's something you're familiar with because I've mentioned it to you on more than one occasion. But he starts wrestling with this implication that connects to something that was cultural and so he uses that as his illustration. So in in, in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter three, and verse two, he starts talking about the facts. And some of it I'm going to do from the New King James. Some of it I'm going to do from the, um, from the New American Standard. Um, he talks about, um, uh, do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation or commendation to you or from you? So he's using the idea that letters of commendation and recommendation were quite common at the time. Letters to people and from people that were commending their validity for who they are. But he takes it a step further and says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. And verse 3, you show, this is, in the, this is the new, no, hang on a minute, that, that shouldn't be in that one. I want, uh, is terrible going from touch screens to, to pads? It slips onto the NIV for some reason then. I don't want that. Just give me one second. It's honor the Americans night tonight. night. Um, you are our letter, written on our hearts. This is verse 2. Known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us. So he makes this statement... To the Corinthians in this time remember when their only Bible was in context was the Old Testament Scriptures because again one of the things that you hear preachers preach and often forget is that the New Testament church wasn't walking around with the New Testament. In fact most of them had only the Old Testament Scriptures and the letter that might have been written to their church for example the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Ephesians uh, plus, possibly another smattering of stuff that may not even <coughs> have formulated what we would now know as the Bible, but were the reflections and expressions of those who were carrying this message of Jesus out to those people. So, so he not only takes that, but he talks about the fact that that you, you, uh, you are a letter of Christ. Now, if they're a letter of Christ, the word that he would have used in the context of Old English was epistle. You are an epistle of Christ. Now, you know, I use the word "letter" because we understand a letter more than we do an epistle, but an epistle was the letter, So when we hear in old language about you know the Epistle to the Corinthians, the Epistle to the Galatians, the Epistle to the Ephesians, epistle is not some special ecclesiastical name that says, you know, um, I, w- I write a letter to the church, uh, an epistle to the church, but I write a letter to James. It's the same thing, okay? So there's no distinction, there's nothing holy about the word epistle or sacred. And Paul is rightly taking a hold of that and saying, as sure as I am writing this letter to you, which of course was not scripture at that time, right? Remember when Paul's writing is not writing scripture, He's writing letters. He's writing help and encouragement. He's doing nothing different to what I or Chris or Jenny or, or Joel or any of us would do when we stand up here and speak to you or we write to you. In Paul's eyes he was doing nothing more than that. Now, I feel sorry for the guy sometimes because you know if 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 millions of people were able to pick over everything that I'd written or said, I'd be a little nervous. And uh, I'd probably think, wish I hadn't said that. In fact, you know, I don't have millions of people, but there are some things I think I wish I hadn't said that. Um, because we, like Paul, were on a journey of, of discovering not the letter, but the Spirit. right? And Paul's writing in the spirit of what he has found. He's, he's discovered something in his heart and his life, and he's saying, it looks like this to me. So if we translate that to now, we're doing nothing different, not that I'm saying Paul and I are equivalent and we're the same or whatever, you know, he's influenced far more people than me and uh, is a superstar in the context of Christianity, Um, but there is a similarity uh, in the sense of we are speaking out of our spirit, saying this is how it looks to me. And, um, And like I said to Paul, it wasn't scripture at the time, it was just it was just a letter that became this and got closed off. And I I personally would doubt, it's my feeling, that Paul, if you would have asked him whether he wanted nothing else to be written beyond what he wrote into church life, would have said absolutely not. Now, having said that, you, you can't have your, a source of reference really having 4,000 volumes. So in some ways, I'm glad that that we are restricted in the number of books because it gives us a base, it gives us an idea that we don't need a library just to contain all the, all the information. But when we put it in its correct context, I, I love what Paul's wrestling with because he's saying, I'm writing letters, we have letters of commendation, but you need to know that you yourself now are a letter. okay? And he goes so far as to say, you are a letter of Christ. Okay? You are a letter of Christ. So straight away in his argument, this has been put in a different place to the one that we were taught it was supposed to be. Because now we've moved over to this, the word living and active, made flesh, living among us, not letter but spirit. So, so Paul was saying, your lives say something about us which can be known and read and the greater truth that we only serve you, that's all we did. We just served you. We didn't make you that. We just served you. But you are actually epistles or letters of Christ. Or in other words, your lives say something about Christ which can be known and read by all. So, here's the first challenge. Our lives say something about Christ that can be known and read by all. So when we say I'm a Christian and we're unfaithful he says something about Christ that can be known and read by all. When I say I'm a follower of Christ and I gossip, he says something about Christ that can be known and read by all. When I say I'm a follower of Christ and I forgive, he says something about Christ that can be known and read by all. When when I say I'm a follower of Christ and I show kindness, it says something about Christ that can be known and read by all. So, our lives are not books that when we feel spiritual and want to be spiritual suddenly open up and people say oh that's amazing, isn't Jesus wonderful I wish I had your faith all the time once we make our stand for Christ we are readable and we become as influential in most people's lives as this because most people's contention For or against Christianity is not based on this. It's based on this. When I saw what it did for you, when I heard what you said, when I saw how you forgave, when I saw how you were faithful, it touched my life. There's an atmosphere I feel when I'm around you. So some people come, yes, through this, but but not because it's letter. Some people come through that because they hear spirit. But most people are responding and developing their faith according to the influence that we have. So that puts a responsibility on us, right, that we should take very seriously. There are lots of issues I could throw into that, but we'll leave those for another time. So, he goes on to say that it's not the result of something written in ink or engraved in stone, but it's an expression of what's written on the heart. He said there in verse um, verse 2, I'm in the New American Standard, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All the writing that takes place here and within here Is basically on two things. Now I know you could argue say no, it wasn't. It was on papyrus, or you know, we get you know, Paul's. He's doing. It's like when I say that, I mean papyrus, or no. He's got to do two things. It was either in letters written or or engraved in stone. Which of course, Moses' law, the Ten Commandments. What happened with those? They were written. They were engraved in stone. But he's saying that what's written with us is not written with ink. So you can't actually pen down what this really is. If that is true, this in its entirety can't fully pen down what it really is that we're about. Okay? That's why the Word didn't become the Bible. The Word became flesh. It dwelt among us. It doesn't say, and the Word became the Bible and was put in the library. The Word became flesh, lived among us, so we could see the glory of the Father. So, we've got here that that um, uh, that that, the, that we are. It's not the result of something written in ink or engraved in stone, but an expression of what's written on the heart. So, so we've changed the we've changed the material on which the major thing takes place. Okay from paper and ink and stone and chisel to finger of God on your heart, okay? Being the most critical expression of the word, okay? What's written on your heart, okay? So, so it goes on to say that you do not become competent as a minister of the new covenant by being familiar with the letter but by being sensitive to the Spirit. And he uses a phrase that's quite strong. Let me read it from uh, from verse um, verse 5. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Verse 6, who made us adequate as what? As servants or ministers of a new covenant. So the only thing that we can say we have been made adequate. do adequately equipped to do by God is to be servants or messengers of the new covenant and the moment we step outside of that our actual adequacy that has been given us by God becomes deficient okay it becomes deficient and we begin to minister something that is not life which is going to go on to say in a few minutes okay Because he says at the end of the there, we've been made adequate as servants of of a new covenant. Of course, we've done a lot of teaching on that. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Listen, because the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Now, what we're finishing up with again here, have you seen what we're finishing up with? (laughs) We're back to our line again. The Bible, letter, kills. The most destructive force in the universe is not not a 10 megaton atomic bomb. The most destructive force that has probably destroyed more lives than anything is this in the wrong hands when it's the letter because the letter kills. And uh, I have developed a deep distaste for many of the quote Christian arguments that you see take place because what it is people take a verse from the Bible and use it to kill someone okay? it's not an attempt to have a meaningful conversation about truth and about life but it, it's, the, it's the killer verse I've got the killer ammunition when I throw this anger grenade of this verse into your camp this will kill you and you'll shut up and stop being such a stupid because you're actually a heretic okay So so the Bible can be destructive when we see it as letter, because letter kills. But on the other side, the Word, when it's led by the Spirit, always brings life to people. And again, we're going to break this down a little further as we go on. So so the letter kills, the Spirit gives rise. So, so, So we've got this revelation that whether written in stone or on paper... The letter kills and only the Spirit gives life. And and this really is the New Covenant. This is the essence of the New Covenant. Okay, Um, And of course, what Paul couldn't write about then, but if he were writing now, would be able to say that New Testament letter kills just as much as Old Testament letter because the confusion is that people think the New Testament is the New Covenant. But the New Testament is is not the New Covenant any more than the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is deeply ingrained within the Old Testament, but there's a lot of fluff and stuff written around that. The New Covenant is deeply ingrained in the New Testament, but there's some fluff and stuff around that. So we've got to find within it what we're talking about. The essence of the old covenant is, is what is written in stone because of what he's going to explain. The essence of the new covenant is what's written by the Spirit, which is also going to explain. So, so, um, so what does he mean then by letter and Spirit? Let me, let me give you a simple definition for letter. This will really ring home with some of you. Letter, I want it spelled out to me. So you know if you're a letter or a spirit person, I just want it spelled out to me. That's letter, okay? I want it spelled out to me. That's letter, okay? Uh, It's either that or, you know, I want it spelled out to me. What he's saying is that will ultimately kill you or, or you will kill someone but I want it spelled out to me for the reasons dealt with, or it will kill you for the reasons dealt with in this chapter. So, so letter is rooted in instruction. okay, And we like instruction. That's why, that's why we always want to drag through into the new covenant, the essence of the old covenant. Because one thing the old covenant was not short of was instruction instructions about everything and anything and anyone and any event and any eventuality and we have confused that with Christianity, being followers of Jesus. It's not. In fact, you'll find that Jesus was not prone to be instructive. That's not not what he was prone to do. You have to do this, you have to do that. So, So, letter... I want it spelled out to me, is rooted in instruction. So, so what does it mean of the spirit? Then could it be that spirit is that thing that connects two worlds? So the problem is here, this keeps us rooted in something that, that the Bible calls means we can never break out of the limitations of our own human understanding and therefore we have to try and squash everything in to make sense in our human understanding. Flesh. Now, if you've got an NIV Bible, if you even bother to read your Bible, I recommend you do read your Bible. If you want to know what to read, I'll tell you, I'll tell you three great books to read. Luke I would read as a gospel for the simple reason that Luke was a non Jew. And a clever man whose book is written from him, taking his information from many sources, which he is open about. He says he he investigated this through many sources. I like that. Um, Galatians, if you're a real New Covenant believer, is an awesome book, and that Galatians, there's a little argument about which were the first books of the New Testament. Some argue that it was James, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. I struggle with both Thessalonians, but we'll talk about that again another time. Uh, And I also struggle with James. Martin Luther struggled with James. Martin Luther called James a book of straw. Now, I think it was going a bit far. But if you begin to understand the the, the Jewish, -Jewish, non-Jewish... conflict over the gospel you'll understand that some of the things James was saying he's still trying to push a Jewish agenda Okay, and that's not our subject tonight but, um, but uh, then there's Galatians now some would argue that Galatians was the first book or it came just after James what's fascinating is that Galatians is the one that wrestles with the church already in about 45 AD so if, if we take it Jesus died about 30 AD um, they're already wrestling with the newfound church trying to borrow ideas from Judaism, which is all the argument of should we circumcising and not eating certain things and being separate. And so, his first book, Paul, who who was trained very highly in understanding Jewish culture, he's having to fight the cause of the gospel. We're only fifteen years in and we are trying to borrow ideas to make what we like from Judaism attached to this new belief, this new understanding that Jesus has brought. Now, uh, if there ever was a name that should be dispensed with because it is totally misleading, it's Judeo-Christian. I am totally, completely, 100% opposed to the term Judeo-Christian. Because Jesus did not begin a Judeo-Christian religion. First of all, it wasn't Judaism, and secondly, it wasn't Christian. So both names are not correct. Okay? Jesus didn't come to start Christianity. He came to start the way, and we were called Christians later by somebody else, but that was not the objective. And the church Jesus built, of course, as we've talked about the Ecclesia. The reason I say that I'm totally against it is because it gives you the idea that you can adopt Jewish thinking to explain Jesus' ideas. When Jesus' ideas correct Jewish thinking, don't adopt Jewish thinking. Jesus didn't come and say, listen to the Pharisees and the priests because you've got to understand all this, but by the way, I'm the sacrifice for sin. Did he? In fact, he... Con- more than anybody the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders not because the Jews did not have validity, not because they didn't have a revelation within their culture, but it was never about Judaism. Judaism is what came out of a covenant that was made with Abraham that no longer looked like that covenant. Just like Christianity in many ways has come out of the life of Jesus but can no longer look like what Jesus was teaching very easily and very readily. That makes sense. So, so we've got flesh. Oh, I was just I got on the NIV. The NIV translates this terribly because it calls it sinful nature. That's because the NIV was translated by charismatics, Pentecostals and evangelicals who are obsessed with the, with, the, with, the, with the fall and original sin, which, you know, we, we would have some strong arguments, which I've already raised about, if you start in Genesis 3, that's fine, but the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3, it starts in Genesis 1, with original blessing. So we've already got a problem there. But, so sinful nature is not right. Flesh is part of who we are, our being, but it's the bit that connects with the world, relates to the world, that readily likes what we've talked about. It likes to have everything spelled out and rooted in instruction. That's what this likes. So this part of you is wonderfully happy here. Give me a Bible, give me the letter. I know that it kills, but it won't kill me because Jesus loves me, okay? But just give me a bunch of instruction. now. If there's one way that we haven't served you, and it's been a progressive thing, but deliberate, is that we have given you less and less instruction about what's right, what's wrong, what you should believe, what you shouldn't believe, how you should act, how you shouldn't act, and some people dislike that to such a degree that they've decided, I'm not staying here, okay? That hurts, but uh, you have one of two choices, either to say, I didn't want to upset anybody by doing that or you have to say no in my heart, my soul, my spirit I am so convinced of this revelation of the new covenant that if that has to happen for us to get where we need to be then it has to happen doesn't mean it's without pain it comes with a lot of pain but then most things that have resurrection come with pain and death so um, I must admit humility is a nice idea but when humility comes from being humiliated I don't like that bit And I fight that, but there you go. So, so what does it mean of the spirit? Could it be that that's the thing that connects two worlds? That that's the place where it's the new heart before the old head. Because he said, I'll give you a new heart. New heart before old head. Old head says, give me some instruction. New heart says, I just want to know Jesus, and I want to know what this revelation is. And I want to follow him and I want to understand him and I want to receive from him. I want the word to be made flesh in me. That's new heart because um, we couldn't misunderstand. If I said to some of you, it's heart before head, that's going to mess you up real bad because she, some of you are nutcases and <laughs> in love. Who uh, don't, you know, some of these things we don't know fully how to evaluate them. And the truth is, you've got to get into this word, spirit, life side to really get an understanding of what it means for the heart to lead the head. But it's not your old heart leading your old head, it's your new heart, right? I'll put my law in your heart. I'll write it in your mind. When your new covenant touched, it's about new heart leading old head because old head says, give me instruction. New heart says, but, but, but in Christ I've been set free. Old head says, you better sort yourself out because you're condemned. New heart says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Old head says, you're unrighteous and you're guilty. New heart says, I'm righteous and I'm forgiven. So, so there's a big difference there. So I, that's, my little, that's my little kind of stab at the difference between letter and spirit. Not saying it's all embracing, but but trying to give you something. So so if letter, I want it spelled out for me, is rooted in instruction, then spirit, new heart before whole dead, is rooted in understanding. Okay? And um, if there's one thing that that has become evident as we have journeyed the journey we've been on and potentially move further and further away from some of the things that we were once very stuck on and... uh, And what has surprised me also about the length of time we've taught some stuff, and now we think clearly we've taught it, how many people still don't understand? Now, Jesus had to say several times to his disciples, have I said all this and done all that? and shown you all this and you still don't understand. So we're in good company in that sense, because I think Jesus was kind of pulling his long hair out, which was blonde and his blue eyes, pulling his hair out because... Because of this issue of, of he he, he, he was trying to convey that understanding was different to instruction. And he's in a culture that lives by instruction. Bring two turtle doves when you bring your child, if you're a poor person, on the eighth day to live by instruction, even Jesus' parents. But Jesus is wanting them to live by understanding. So even in parables like his parable of the sower, he says, he that hears and does not understand is like the one whose seed was by the wayside in the rocky place among the thorns. What was the root of it? The root of it was he who hears and does not understand has that experience. But the one who had thirty, sixty, and 100 fold, he who hears and understands is like the one who, who receives a hundred, sixty, and thirty-fold return. So, here's my challenge about lab, and about what we teach, and about whether you think, I can't be bothered with all this, and it's all... Because understanding lies at the key to fruitfulness in the Word, Spirit, life. Okay? Not knowledge, but understanding because you can know lots of stuff and not understand it. One of the problems educationally can be we teach kids things and then we ask them questions in an exam that only require that they have knowledge. Now you put them out into the working world and you realise they know some stuff but they don't understand nothing. Which is why I sincerely believe that, that, that most of our students are educated beyond their intelligence. Because they know stuff, But knowing stuff does not make you intelligent, right? Understanding stuff makes you intelligent. So what we're trying to do, it might be a poor effort, we might not do it very well, we're trying to get you to understand some things, okay? Because when you understand it, it's a 160 and 30-fold return. It's not battling through the thorns and the rocks and the sandy ground. There's a return, because you're working in word, spirit, life, not Bible, letter, being killed, and flesh. Okay? Right, where are we? So, Paul challenges our understanding of the content of Scripture, which is interesting, because that's what we've done. And he declares from verse 7 through verse 9, that what was written and engraved in stone, listen to this, ministered death and not life. That's a bold thing for Paul to do. Let me read you verse 7. I'm going to read again from the the, um, New American. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently upon the face of Moses because the glory of his face was fading as it was how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So here's what he says comes here, which is fascinating because this has all to do with the Bible. Death, condemnation. condemnation now isn't it fascinating that that's the process here and Paul's trying to get this over, Okay, you are living epistles if you get this wrong you'll get stuck in the same thing that happened throughout this history which was that all those commandments that ever were written on stone all they ever did, all they ever did was bring death I love the fact he uses the term "minister." It ministered death. Okay, it actually the commandments minister death and they minister condemnation because all the commandments are "thou shalt not," "thou shalt not," "you must not," "thou shalt not." If you do, I, I think I think God was having a bit of a laugh in there as well because it's like, you know, don't murder, get it? Don't commit adultery. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey. Like, you know, like that's, you know, there's all these world change, these mind-blowing things. Yeah, get that, God, get that. Yeah, well, you know your neighbor's donkey? Don't covet that donkey. It's like, well, you know, would you really take, why take one of the ten to cover something as insignificant as coveting your neighbor's donkey? I think think God in his sense of humor was trying to tell us something with that. I might be wrong, but... Yeah, keeping the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Yeah. So, here's what he says: What was written and engraved in stone ministered death, not life. Okay. It ministered condemnation, not freedom. Okay. I'm gonna put this over here: condemnation, not freedom. Death, not life. And it ministered something else. We've got to have three if we're going to be any. Yeah, i got that somewhere. It was uh, death, not life, condemnation, not freedom. I'll I'll come to that in a minute. And was passing away. This is the other interesting thing. Verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness and glory. uh, For indeed... Uh, that for ten verse ten, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it, don't even bother your head with that. I could explain it, but i 'm not going to for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains glorious. Or, in other words, again in verse 7, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was. So, we've got this whole idea over here that this at its best was fading, okay? Passing away, fading, okay? Fading, not increasing. Here we've got over here increasing, glory to glory. That is always fading, and will always cause you to fade, and everybody who gets put under it. It was passing away, which means that it was not enduring. So this is not an enduring system. And um, uh, uh, and yet it says in verse 11, yet it was glorious which means it had weight, it had significance, it had importance, it had meaning, but not the weight, the significance, the importance, the meaning that we put on it when we are driven by this rather than this. Because when we look at it from this angle, we realise that all this has meaning, significance, importance, but only for one reason, to push you across this line to get you back up here to the Word made flesh. That's redemption, being redeemed from your former way of life, which we we still have even as believers to get us back into where we take this this path of of the word. So he points out that its glory was always fading, therefore you could only, listen to this, very important, therefore you could only receive and maintain what it offered by perpetually going back. So Moses has to perpetually go back to worship in that place, in that way, with that sacrifice to get another blessing, to go out to the people, to say, oh, look at the glory, and then it faded, and he perpetually had to go back. When you live here, there is no perpetual necessity because you are made righteous once for all, right? Righteous. Once for all. Okay? Why? Because it's the gift of righteousness. Over here we're trying to earn justification. Over here we are gifted with righteousness because of the word the spirit brings life and we have righteousness. So, here's what happens here that becomes difficult and dangerous. Because it's not necessary for me to keep going back into this place called the presence to get another dose of this thing called glory, to do my thing and bring my sacrifice and make my offering and do my songs and what have you, here is where we start to not know what the heck we're supposed to do because we are so governed by spirituality, which is not spirituality, it's actually flesh, right? We think it's spiritual to do all this stuff flesh is what he says it is, flesh, right? Flesh. Because flesh has to go about certain things in order to make itself feel okay. And the sad thing is, and, and I don't mean, th- this is as critical of us as it is of, 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 of anything else that you may think of or your mind may go to, we still tend to have a flesh-driven Concept of what church should look like and what we must do or feel or be for us to have the presence of God. Well, Moses had that glory, but the problem was because it was fading, he had to keep going back. And the problem is when you start living as somebody who didn't need to keep going back to somewhere, people look at you as though you're backslidden, you're not saved, you're not spiritual anymore. But no, when you've got a revelation of righteousness, you live in that righteousness, not to attain righteousness. Now, there are many things that are good to help us in our spirit and in our life that we should do to express. But actually, we should have a greater sense of commitment to this than we have to this. So I shouldn't do less than I would have done when I get over here. I should actually be seeking to do more than I would have done. This is not an excuse to do nothing. This is a good reason to do more, to give more, to serve more, to be more, to be more vocal, to say more, to sing more, to do more because of the righteousness that is within me. But what it exposes is that, is that we were doing all that before to get something, to get a feeling, to get a sense of acceptance before God. That's Old Covenant. Old covenant. And all it brings is death. So, is this making sense? So, the paradox is that we tend to like the ministry of condemnation. We actually do. No, seriously, we do. And I'll tell you why we like the ministry of condemnation. Because we like to feel bad because it serves as a penance for what we believe to be or have been our failings. (laughs) So if I feel bad, it's like there's a penance for, you know, I, 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 feel so, I feel I've failed and there have been things that I've failed in. So if I feel really bad, it's like a penance. So we actually love the ministry of condemnation because we feel good about feeling bad. And I was raised, I have to say in all honesty, I was raised in a spiritual environment that was at least 50%, if not more, feeling good about feeling bad right, be real sorry for your sins, you should hate your flesh, hate your sin, you're a sinner but for the grace of God you're a worm, okay, and kind of coming from that environment, some of you haven't but some of us have, it was like the greatest thing in the world was to feel so bad that you would go and fall at the front of the church and weep and sob and repent and cry and blubber and snot and you just felt great after it. It just felt really good. Um, because there's something about feeling bad that appeals to the flesh that deceptively we think is to do with the spirit, but actually it's appealing to the flesh, because yeah, it's, yeah, it's the makeup after the row, you know. And so I'm not saying there are not times when we need to have a deep sense of fixing something, putting something right, but that's not the core of what comes through the word. It's the core of what comes through the Bible, letter, kill, flesh, death, condemnation, fading. So, you know, the gospel I remember was you had to feel good about feeling bad. It was good to feel bad, because you're a sinner. But then it was bad to feel good, because that was then self-righteousness and pride. So, you know, Some of you will know what Fifty Shades of Grey is. It's it's a book about sadomasochism. And uh, my Christianity for years was a Fifty Shades of Grey Christianity. It was sadomasochism. It was pleasure from pain. And pain for pleasure. The pain being (coughs) the deep realisation of what a sinner I was and, and how unworthy I was. But how God loved me and he would forgive me. And it was a kind of sadomasochism a pleasure pain syndrome and sadly I have to say some of you might not agree with this but but there are elements of the christian gospel that some of us were raised with that are based on that pleasure pain thing you have to feel bad about feeling good and you have to feel good about feeling bad and we were caught on that treadmill I mean one of the things chris and I often remember is we were pressured to be holy you have to live a holy life you must be holy but if you felt then you were holy, then you obviously weren't holy, because now you were full of pride. So you couldn't, you you had to be holy, but you could never be holy, but you must be. And God would only accept you if you were holy, but if you thought you were holy, you weren't holy, because you were, do you understand what I'm saying? This will do that to you and it does that to people. And we're trying to free you from that. We're trying to bring you struggling, screaming, fighting if necessary, And through all the difficulties to say, there is a better way. There is a Jesus way. Now I'll remember as well, when Jesus got onto this stuff, he he was quite provocative. One day he said, here's the deal, eat my body, drink my blood, or you're not in. And the response wasn't, oh Jesus, that's a real revelation. That's amazing. We're just blown away. Says many left him and followed him no more. Because they couldn't wrestle from instruction to understanding. Okay. They thought it was an instruction. Eat my body, drink my blood. When it was something they were supposed to understand. And if they understood it, which Jesus said after he said, those people left, I know, but here's the deal. You know, what I meant was the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. It didn't literally mean do that. But some people wouldn't stay around long enough to have the pleasure that would come from the knowledge of what he was teaching and become part of that instruction. and We're, we're struggling through to that place, and God is helping us. Okay, so let's, let's see where, where we go from here. Uh, okay, so, so this, this condemnation has a kind of a glory, okay? Verse nine says, the ministry of condemnation had glory But the ministry that brings righteousness, this is again New American Standard, is more glorious. Now I'm going to put another word in there to try and help you for verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, it had a purpose and it still has a purpose. The law, Paul said, is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Okay, He's there to teach us something, not about what it is, but about what it isn't so that we'll know where we need to go. Let me put one other word in here. The ministry, the ministry let me go, verse 10 in the in American Standard. For indeed what had glory in this place? Uh, no, verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness have glory. I'm looking for the one that brings glory and I can't find... A, a let me find the verse on that. It might be, it might, we might be back in the New King James. Verse nine. Yeah, anyway, whichever it is, doesn't matter. Let me put a word in there for you. The ministry of condemnation had glory, but the ministry that brings righteousness is the words I want to put in, to the fore. The ministry that brings righteousness to the fore, right? The ministry that brings righteousness to the fore. So it's not an add-on after everything, it's at the forefront of everything. The ministry that brings righteousness to the fore is more glorious. <clears throat> so this has a glory, but this is more glorious. We, we've set our life and our resources to move from what we lived in that had glory to move into what we're now living in which is more glorious. Now, we're then challenged to connect three things. These are the three things. Veil on the face, a dull blinded mind, and veil on the heart. Okay? So, it talks about, in verse 13, how Moses used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel could not look intently on the fading glory, okay? So, the veil on the face was actually... Hiding the reality of something that was inevitably going to happen. Okay, the dull, blinded mind. He talks about. He talks about. Uh, uh, but their minds were hardened or were dull. Okay, I'm going to just build on that in a moment. <clears throat> and he talks about the. Uh, he talks about the, the 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 veil on the heart. So let let me give three things then for that, okay? Three things. Veil on the face keeps us from recognizing that which is a fading, failing revelation. Which sometimes we don't want to acknowledge, we don't want to deal with. So Moses put a veil on his face. Because first of all, it was bright. But they were trying to not make it evident that what was bright was actually a fading glory until he got some more. So the veil on the face keeps us from recognizing that which is a fading, failing revelation. I'm for a no-veil situation. The dull mind keeps us from viewing the Old Covenant an Old Testament and New Testament through a new lens. Dull mind, a dull mind. We like sometimes to keep our mind dull. Which some of you don't believe, but Jesus said this, you have covered your eyes and you've put your fingers in your ears because you're afraid that what you're about to see and what you're about to hear will cause you to have to turn from where you are and be converted to something else this is the same thing Paul's talking about about having a, a dull mind okay? a dull mind or a hardened mind stops us from viewing the Old Covenant of the Old Testament and old ways through a new lens. And the veil on the heart, because he said about them having a a veil for until this, the very day of the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. Verse 15, this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Right. The veil on the heart stops us seeing and hearing beyond predetermined, pre-established models and practices. That's the reason for the veil on the heart. It stops us from seeing and hearing beyond predetermined, pre-established models and practices. The veil on the heart. Veil on the head, dull of the mind, veil on the heart. So Moses had a veil over his head But we finish up with a veil over our heart. Now, what's interesting about this is the heart is the hub for the spirit. Because spirit doesn't work in head, spirit works in heart. So when we have a veil over our heart, which is the hub for the spirit, we just can't ever quite engage and synchronize and catch what it is that the spirit is doing because it doesn't follow predetermined, pre-established models and practices. That's what spirit does, it breaks those things. And so while ever we think that there is a reinforcing of predetermined, pre-established models and practices, I will guarantee you that it's not the spirit that's at work, it's the letter that's at work. And it's killing whatever revelation is seeking to press through. So we can come from the Word to Spirit, but then move back to letter and kill what it was that the Spirit wanted to do because we put a veil over our heart for the reason that this does not seem to follow predetermined and pre-established models and practices. And so we stop seeing and hearing beyond those things. And inevitably what we do is we look for somewhere or something that reinforces our predetermined, pre established models and practices. That's what we're up against, isn't it? So Moses may have had a veil over his head, but we finish up with a veil over our heart, which is the hub for the spirit. The heart is the hub for the spirit, okay? And when you start to take the veil off your heart, watch out. Watch out. Because the heart doesn't refer to the brain in order to let you know what it's feeling. The heart lets you know what it's feeling and the brain has to figure it out. The mind has to figure it out. So over here, we've got the mind. Okay which Paul says has to be renewed. What does it have to be renewed to? Something that's driven by spirit, not by reason. The hub is the heart. Watch out when you take the veil off your heart. That's what some people are afraid of. Let's cover that up again. (laughs) Where this leads, I'm not sure that I want to go because the implications are too great. And the cost might be excessive. Veil over our heart, the hub for The spirit. So we finish up with a hardened mind and a veiled heart. So the solution to that is very simple. You need a softened mind and an unveiled heart. Soft minds. What what, what we long for on this journey, because we've had to wrestle with this ourselves and I don't claim to be there fully, Um, but we need soft minds. See, when the mind is rigid... It cannot be changed, right? It cannot be changed. If your mind is rigid, it cannot be changed. Therefore, you cannot be changed. If your mind is rigid, you can't make this journey that we're on. You can't. You will not make this journey that we're on. Those with rigid minds could not make the journey that Jesus was taking them on because their established forms and practices were being challenged all the time but they had rigid minds. So instead of saying let's embrace what's happening by the Spirit they said let's crucify what's happening by the Spirit. So they took the Lord of glory and crucified him, rigid minds what we want is soft minds, minds that are pliable, minds that the heart can speak to and the mind is willing to absorb what the heart is showing. It's the thing of, I know there's something about this. I remember Frank, dear old Frank Houston used to say, it was my favourite statement of all Frank's obscure and weird statements. He used to say, I know something, I just don't know what it is that I know. I love that from the first time I heard it. It didn't confuse me, that's probably because I've got more of a prophetic spirit um, than some, but the first time I heard it I thought, perfect, that is such an explanation of what happens here when the heart is the hub, I know something, I just don't know what it is that I know. And then in time what happens is a mind that is not rigid but a mind that is soft Starts to engage what's coming out of the heart by the spirit and is willing to flex itself to get around it and and, and gain understanding. Right. Understanding. Understanding. We haven't written that on, have we yet? Understanding. Understanding. Standing. As opposed to Instruction. or knowledge. Now, we want to help you, and I want to help you as a leader to give you as much instruction as is viable. You know, because leaders lead and followers follow. So, But, but if that instruction only comes from this, you will not change. You're more likely to get mad at me at the end of the day then you will because understanding is what what I strive for. Not instruction for you, but understanding. If you understand who you are, if you understand who the Father is, if you understand what Jesus has done, if you understand the Word made flesh, if you understand Spirit and the heart being the hub for spirit. If you understand these things, then we won't have to give you a lot of instruction, just probably a different word, which is a more spirit word, which is direction, which is a very different thing. Direction. You will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. That's called direction. And direction is what comes from understanding because this, the heart by the Spirit, is not on this. We need soft minds and unveiled hearts. That's a good word, isn't it? Soft mind. If you want to pray something, pray this. Father, please help me to have a soft mind and an unveiled heart. Give me, grant me, grace me, with a soft mind and an unveiled heart. And then you'll see this manifest. So, I'm nearly done. Let me just hit verse 14, because he says, even to this day when Moses is read, um, or the old covenant is read, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. It has to be removed in Christ it has to be removed in Christ that verse is 14 is it yeah 14 in the in the new american standard so he's even saying that when this comes out for a lot of people the veil comes down right Bible comes out, veil comes down. That's what he's saying, really. Bible comes out, veil comes down. Ain't nothing going to change here today because all we're looking for is justification and verification for what it is we already established. Bible comes out, veil comes down, is what he's saying to this day. But whenever a person... I like this. Whenever a person turns, whenever anyone turns... To the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the key to getting rid of that veil is turning. You've got to turn from where you fixed yourself and established yourself. Turn to the Lord. Okay, God, I haven't a clue, but I'm turning to you. Here I am. I turn to you. And whoever turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So there's a turning required from us. So verse 17, New American Standard. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. It says in the New King James, liberty. Okay? Liberty. I like what um, a guy called who, uh who is a, a Greek translator. He has a, a lexicon, Greek lexicon, that, that you can get in a lot of Bible study tools. And he says that's liberty or freedom to do or omit things having no relationship to salvation. I like that. So it's not about liberty, freedom, you know, tiptoe through the tulips with the lambs. It's about the liberty to omit things having no relationship to salvation. Or in other words, sorting out what really matters and having the freedom to say, that's going because it's not worth anything. Which some people can't do when it comes to the old covenant. When we actually need to say about much of that stuff, that's old covenant, we've been freed from that, we have the gift of righteousness, we are at liberty to omit that from our essentialities and practices. So, and then I'm going to finish on verse 18. Uh, For we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory is the... American Standard, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I like the New King James better for this reason. New King James says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I like that translation for this reason that when you look in the mirror, who do you see? See, this is very important, because remember how we started, you are letters written by Christ, you are living letters written by Christ, you've broken out of this, taken inspiration, but you have become this in your generation, to your world. With unveiled face, okay, so we're not, We're not hiding any fading glory. We come as we are. Beholding as in a mirror, who do you see when you look in a mirror? You see you. But what do we see in that mirror when we have an unveiled face? The glory of the Lord. Right? You look at you and say, now there's the glory of the Lord if ever I saw it. Because of where he brought you from, where brought you to, the fact that you stand there with the righteousness of God in Christ, oozing all over you, you look in that mirror and say, now there's the glory of God. If ever I saw it, is Paul's point, because you are this. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. There's a process, we are being transformed. Right? When you get this over here, there is a transformation, we are being transformed Into the same image from glory to glory. Not from condemnation to death, but from glory to glory. From meaning, significance, to meaning and significance, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. How's it all happening? It's all happening by the Spirit of the Lord because we've learned to live in this process here. So if Paul is to be believed, this is one of my favorite sayings, your life is not a post-it note on the refrigerator of history. Your life is an epistle, a letter of importance, an expression of the dealings of God with humanity, and you are the Bible being written to your generation. Amen. Okay. So Father, soft minds, And unveiled hearts is our sincere prayer to you tonight that we might be the Word made flesh, bringing life by the Spirit with the gospel of righteousness that brings liberty and freedom and ever increasing glory because of an understanding and a direction that we have received from you. So we hold precious. And open up tonight that our heart is the hub for your spirit. So come fill our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We're done. We're done. And uh, we'll see how we can mess you up again next week.